Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 160, Anger and Contempt. And on the podcast this week, I have decided to include another sermon from my church, this one that I preached this past Sunday, February the 12th. As I shared last week, we just so happened to be in our lectionary readings going through portions of the Sermon on the Mount at the exact same time that we are doing so on the podcast. And so this past Sunday, I preached on Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, which was the very next five verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought that went fairly well. I think we were able to make some good connections. And while I didn't address everything that I could have addressed in that passage, I believe I've addressed enough. And maybe we'll take some time in future weeks to go back and look at some more particulars of some other things that Jesus mentions throughout the sermon. But for this week, I thought I would give you the sermon one more time. And in the church calendar, we're getting ready to head into the Lent season following this next coming Sunday. And so we won't be in the Sermon on the Mount anymore. And so I'll probably be back to simply teaching and giving you some insights on the podcast like normal. But I've decided to go ahead and include this one here as a sermon once again. And I hope that you are encouraged by it. So without any more of an introduction, here is the sermon, Anger and Contempt. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Reading from chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of the Lord. Jesus, would you give us ears to hear your words to us this morning? Thank you for the presence of your spirit who enables us to understand your mind and to give us insight into what you mean here. So we ask for your presence with us, that this would be a clarifying time and a time of um, cleansing. We thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We remember last week when we were talking about Jesus's words, he needed to address the fact that what he was about to share and what he has already been sharing about the Beatitudes and about his disciples being salt and light in the earth was so different from possibly what all of his hearers had been hearing the, the Pharisees teach them from the Old Testament, that it seemed almost as if Jesus was introducing something brand new into um, their, their midst. And so Jesus takes the time to remind them I've not come to abolish what you knew from the Old Testament, but I do need to address the fact that the way you've been taught that Old Testament might be skewed in some certain respects. 
And so starting in Matthew 5, verse 21, all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually lays out six different times where he says something similar to, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And it's important to realize, unlike some, that what Jesus is not doing here is he is not saying the Old Testament is is crazy, it's off base, it has no bearing anymore into what we're supposed to do as Christians. What Jesus is doing here is he is addressing what the Old Testament always was addressing, but he's making sure that just because you read the letter of the law and don't think you've broken the letter of the law, you still could be guilty of breaking the spirit of the law. And the law, as God gave it to his people, was always for the purpose of causing life and flourishing in their midst so that they truly could be Jerusalem, a city set on a hill, so that all the world would see the way they live and would notice that the God they serve must be far and away better than any of the gods that they've ever known. That was always the point. And so Jesus starts with probably what is one of the most famous, easy-to-understand laws given in the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Now, most people know that you shall not murder comes from the list of the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number six. It's listed for us twice in the Old Testament, once in Exodus 20, and it is repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We've got love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't make any graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't steal and don't covet, right? That's the 10 commandments. He lands us on number six and says, do not murder. Here's what the Pharisees took this to mean. As long as you don't kill another human being, you're not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. I.e., if you're not a murderer, you're on the path to righteousness, Now, in some sense, that's not entirely untrue. You're certainly not on the path of unrighteousness. If you murder someone, you know, that would put you on the path of unrighteousness. But just refraining from murder doesn't actually get to the heart of why God gives that command. And it's why Paul will have to say numerous times, if the law could produce righteousness, then righteousness would have come through that law. But just telling a person not to murder your brother doesn't guarantee you have any love for your brother in your heart which Jesus identifies in Matthew 22 as the greatest of all commands. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I wanna read just a little bit for us to get a sense of what Jesus is saying. I wanna read from a commentary that I looked at this past week. Jesus, as you notice in verse 22, says, I I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus steps out of the realm of murder, says you don't need a weapon. If you're simply angry, and we know where anger originates, it originates deep in the human heart, you're guilty or you're liable to the same level of judgment that all of you believe you're liable to if you commit murder. But then Jesus takes it one step further and he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus basically addresses three steps. He addresses anger. Then he addresses, um, he addresses, uh, sorry, whoever insults, like an idea of contempt. 
And then he ends it with this blast of a judgment is made, you fool. Like I now have the authoritative, objective ability to judge you as someone who is wayward and godless and has no business being in the realm of the righteous. And so here's what Dallas Willard says about this passage. I think it's really helpful. He says, when we trace wrongdoing back to its roots in the human heart, we find that in the overwhelming number of cases, it involves some form of anger. Close beside anger, you will find its twin brother, contempt. So it is the elimination of anger and contempt that Jesus presents as the first and fundamental step toward the rightness of the kingdom heart. Anger is a feeling that seizes us in our body and immediately impels us toward interfering with and possibly even harming those who have thwarted our will and interfered with our life. The primary function of anger in life is to alert me to an obstruction of my will and immediately raise alarm and resistance before I even have time to think about it. We can and usually do choose or will to be angry. Anger first arises spontaneously, but we can actively receive it and decide to indulge it, and we usually do. We may even become an angry person, and any incident can evoke from us a torrent of rage that is kept in constant readiness. But contempt is a greater evil than anger, and so is deserving of greater condemnation. Unlike innocent anger, at least, it is a kind of studied degradation of another. And it is also more pervasive in life than anger. In anger, I want to hurt you. In contempt, I don't care whether you are hurt or not. You are not worth consideration one way or the other. When I read things like this, um, I find I could spend hours during the week trying to rewrite that in my own words and it would just be a waste of my time. So I'd rather read to you what somebody else says. This is anger. And I agree with Willard. I think the large majority of the things that go on in our lives are, have anger at the root. Someone has done something or said something that we don't feel is appropriate or right. We feel justified within ourselves of getting upset about that and then we tend to dwell on it think about it, and start thinking through in our minds what we think of this individual. I mean, let me give you the perfect case in point about how quickly this can happen. You're driving down the road. You've got a timed schedule, which is how I drive down the road. I'm going to go to Walmart to pick up bananas, and I know it's going to take me five, and 30, five minutes and 30 seconds to get to the store. It's going to take me two minutes and 45 seconds to get the bananas and get out, and it's going to take me another five minutes and 30 seconds to get home, and I've got a meeting in 15 minutes. And then somebody pulls in front of me who has no time schedule whatsoever. Instantly, my will has been thwarted. It happens in an instant. I don't think to myself, now would be a good time to get angry. It just happens. And before you know it, before my foot even has a chance to hit the brake to keep from hitting this wonderful person who's just decided to pull out in front of me, I've got a string of things to say to them and about them and about the circumstances regarding why are they on the road? Why do they deserve to have a license? 
Didn't they see me? I'm pretty obvious in the middle of the street. And you watch how quickly it happens. And you, you see it happen. If this isn't you, fine. Don't, don't admit that it is. But it's somebody else, right? Who then will speed up and lay on the horn and come right next to the bumper. And then as soon as they have a chance, they'll flip around the car and they'll drive around it as quickly as they absolutely can. But then we find ourselves almost saying, you idiot. Who taught you how to drive? Who let you drive? I have to be honest with you. This, this is kind of funny because it happens to us all, but this happened to me a couple weeks ago. I almost got hit on the highway by a student driver. Whoa. Yeah. And, and I lost my marbles. Like I was, I'm really nervous because we already got in an accident with our new car and it took us like two months to get it fixed. And then it was in that car and I, I literally got run off the road, okay? But then I got really upset because I'm like, it's not his fault. It's the, it's the driver. It's the, it's, the, it's the instructor who's responsible. And I was, I was heated. Like I got heated in less than two seconds about why I almost got run off the road. And I realized that what happens is I end up turning my attention and directing my attention in anger and fury, wanting something to be done about that wrong situation. And in our anger, Jesus is pointing out, we tend to want to make ourselves be that kind of a person. And do you see where, the, where this eventually goes? It eventually goes in Jesus' mind to whoever says, you fool. In other words, it's a person making a declaration. I'm making a statement of fact that I don't know your situation and I don't know everything about you and I don't know what at all is going on in your life that caused you not to be paying attention to me on the road, but I'm gonna make an objective declaration about you. You are a fool. There is nothing good in you. This is what Jesus is saying. It happens incredibly quickly. And it is a negative trajectory, which if we are interested in a world filled with righteousness, a world filled where life can flourish, a life filled where God is on the throne and he showcases his mercy and his compassion to the world, then just saying I'm not going to end that person's life physically is not enough. It is to say I'm going to view that person and everybody I see as the precious, valuable image bearer of God that they are. And it's going to recognize that if you and I want to root out murder from our world, it has to go to the root. And the root of all murderous actions is in the heart. As deep as being angry. My will was not, you know, it was not allowed to run free. And so I felt justified, and sometimes so do you, in getting angry. So you realize in verse 23, Jesus gives a so. He says, you know how quickly this downward spiral can happen. You know how deeply ingrained this is. You all laugh, I know you do, because you've all experienced it, right? It's not a foreign illustration, it's a simple illustration. But it gets to the point. And so Jesus says in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In my mind, this is one of the most significant commands that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount and quite possibly the least applied by followers of Jesus. I want you to look at Jesus' words really closely. In verse 23, Jesus does not say, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that you have something against your brother. 
This would make sense in the flow of Jesus' passage. He has just talked about the quick ability for anger to turn into something worse and eventually land yourself in contempt, which is due for a lot of potentially destructive behavior. And he would almost imagine him saying, therefore, if you find yourself in that position, like, let's deal with this before it becomes a problem. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, if therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus is laying out for us what real kingdom righteousness looks like. And in the kingdom, our concern for our brother or our sister is every bit as high as our concern for ourselves. In the verse that Jesus just now speaks, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, therefore, if you have traveled to the temple and are there to offer your worship to the Lord, which some people tend to think of Jesus's two commands, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There are some people who believe that the love of the Lord your God comes first and the love of your neighbor as yourself comes second. Not according to Jesus. All through the Bible, the way you express your love for the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength is by loving your neighbor as yourself. Which is why John will say ad nauseum, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. It's very easy to imagine ourselves loving God who we can't see, but God says if you don't love your brother whom you do see, how can you say you love God whom you do not see? So what Jesus says is, you know how quickly anger can lead to insults, can lead to contempt. It happens in the blink of an eye. It happens without your conscious awareness. You know how quickly somebody who gets angry could downward spiral and find themselves in a big time predicament. You know how quickly that happens. So if your brother is upset because of something you've done, and you know how quickly that spiral can go downhill. You don't want to see your brother or sister going down that spiral that quickly. So while you're there offering your gift at the altar, you're there to worship the Lord, you're there to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it is at that point when you remember that your brother has something against you, let me give you just a little glimpse. If you are truly offering worship to the Lord, it is not coincidental that in that moment, you'll remember that your brother has something against you. Do you know why? Because the Lord whom you are worshiping will remind you. He'll remind you. Because to him, living out this teaching in real time is the expression of worship that he so desperately wants. So Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I've seen this actually play out in real time in church settings. I've been in churches now for, skipped a few years in seminary when I was taking classes too much, but I was attending a church, but I've been in church serving in a leadership role since 2004. 
So I've had a little bit of time to watch this take place. And I noticed that a lot of the times when our version of when we are at the altar offering our gift, right? So that, that's, that's something. Some people think about that as, well, when I'm giving my tithes. Or some people think that's when I'm coming forward to receive communion. That's this very sobering, very somber time in the church where I'm truly there to receive something from Jesus. But there are some times where we come together as a body to receive from the Lord And there are things going on in the midst of the church body with other members where we don't always see eye to eye. Something might actually be going on in those broken relationships. And I've watched some people decide before they go up and receive communion to try to deal with that situation with that church member. Not to go up and to confront them or point out their sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's rather saying for you to go and to say, hey man, Hey, hey, girl, I don't, I've done something. I, do, I, I realize what I've done is not in line with what God wants from me. Let's see if we can work this out in some way that honors him, that pleases him. Just try to imagine that kind of person, if you will. Here's what, here's what Dallas Willard says about it. He said, just think of what the quality of life and character must be in a person who would routinely interrupt sacred rituals to pursue reconciliation with a fellow human being. What kind of thought life? What feeling tones and moods? What habits of body and mind? What kinds of deliberations and choices would you find in such a person? When you answer these questions, you will have a vision of the true rightness beyond that is at home in God's kingdom of power and love. When Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, which is the last verse we read last week, and it's the verse that immediately precedes this, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is now describing what righteousness in his kingdom would look like. It would look like someone who is so obsessed with righteousness that they'll look for it in the smallest of places. And we know that as much as we would control everybody else's lives if it were up to us, We truly are only in control of one life, and that's ours. And if seeing real righteousness, as Jesus portrays it, is what really has gripped our hearts, then it will be very easy to see places in our own lives where we have not lived that out. And Jesus is saying that's an expression of real worship. He gives one final example. I think it's just a second example of the way this could work. I I don't necessarily see this as related to the first, although you might. In verse 25, he says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I think what Jesus is drawing on here is, in some sense, your accuser, right? Someone who is upset with you for some reason. Someone who might have the ability to sue you. Someone who might have the ability to see you disciplined in a court of law. Someone whose broken relationship with you for whatever means might have the opportunity to do us real harm. Jesus is saying, what do you do in the face of something like that? We believe anger might be at the root of it, 
And if you see it in your brother and it's a result of something you've done, maybe you go to your brother and you reconcile this. Well, what happens if that takes place in a setting outside the church? Can you try a similar approach? When Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he'll provide everything you need, I genuinely think this is part of what it means to seek the kingdom. It means that even though the way that a world really works, people take you to court, they sue you, they, they, they put a lawsuit against you, they try to attack you, they try to discredit you online or whatever they do. These are real things that really hurt that are according to the law. And Jesus is saying, try this on. Go to that person one-on-one without a lawyer and see if you can address the problem before it gets worse. There are some people who would never do that. That's a ridiculous thing to do. You're just going to get steamrolled. You're going to lose all your money. Maybe you will. I have no idea. Paul addresses the church in Corinth in a crazy passage, suggesting to them that the fact that they're fighting with one another and taking each other to court, and they're doing this in the court systems before people who don't know Christ have already failed, even if they win their money. What Jesus seems to be saying is, try to resolve any matter that comes up of which you are a part before it comes to trial. We might try to meet with another person. We might try to ask with sincerity what we could do to help resolve it. That is the sort of thing that a person with a kingdom heart tries to do. We probably won't do it perfectly. It might not even work. But Jesus wants to know what's our interest. By truly loving an accuser, We stand within the reality of God's kingdom and resources, and it is very likely that we will draw that person into those resources as well. Things really are different in the kingdom. But if we do not approach our accuser like this, we consciously limit ourselves and that person to the human system and its laws, and we endure the bitter fruit of it we probably will not escape until it has totally drained us. I've seen this, and it's really sad. And then the cycle of anger continues. That person then becomes, in the language we choose to use, dead to us. Why do we use language like that? It's murderous language. It means the exact same thing, only that person is still alive. But to you... The world you now live in, they're dead. They're not a part of it. And you're perfectly content because we feel justified. And Jesus is saying, that is what is destroying the world. Look around. I know everybody, I've gotten a conversation this week with one of the members and we both kind of came to the same conclusion. It's probably possible that the world has always been this crazy. It's just, it feels more so now. I think that's probably accurate. It does feel so more now because we have so much more access to the crazy. But imagine if you could take Jesus's words and bring those and breathe those into the life of everybody in our culture. Where everybody in our culture, instead of blaming the next person, said, what what have I contributed? Where have I started? This is why I talk to us the way that I do, because I think what Jesus is saying is valuable. But I know how quickly this happens. And I know how quickly somebody's anger can rile somebody else up. I mean, have you ever been in the presence of somebody who's truly angry? It's really easy to become angry with them. It's very contagious, kind of like coronavirus. Very contagious. 
And Jesus is saying, keep that in check. And I, and I would actually say that it's healthy for us to be aware of this. Like sometimes we've got news stations on in the background. They're almost background noise to us. But depending upon what we listen to and when, it's just fueling anger. That's what they are. They're broadcasts for anger. And listen to the next broadcast. When you turn on, and fine, I'll pick on the easiest two, right? You pick on CNN or Fox News. It does not matter. You listen to any one of those for less than five minutes, and I guarantee you this will happen. I don't care what the topic is. I don't care what hour of the day. I don't care what week. I don't care what's happening in the world. This will happen. I guarantee it. I'll give you my salary for this year if this is not true. (laughs) Some issue will surface. They will blame a certain person or group of people or policy for that problem. They will then propose another solution, but then they will tell you why the people who don't believe in their solution but believe in the other problem are idiots. They might not use the word idiot, but they'll use fool, they'll use they're blind, they're just set on evil. Whatever it is, they'll just label it as fact. And you're like, yeah, man, keep it coming. I agree with you totally. You know what's happening? It's producing a low-boiling anger. Somebody's always to blame. That person has a problem with me. Well, they need to be a big boy and come and talk to me. Not according to Jesus. If you know somebody's upset with you, you go to them. Because you know what anger will do unchecked in the heart and you don't want that brother or sister heading down that path. Now, this is hard. I don't think this absolves a person who has a problem with you from coming to you. I think Matthew 18, Jesus addresses that. Somebody's got an issue. They're they're doing something that's wrong. You need to go to that person. You need to talk to them. You need to bring it out. But Jesus is also offering the fact that if you're aware of something that's happening, you can go to that person and try to remedy the problem. This is a righteousness that Jesus is saying very clearly you will never see in the world except among my followers because this makes no sense unless our hearts really belong to Jesus. Nobody's ever gonna put themselves out like this for the benefit of somebody else unless their savior is showing them this is the path to real righteousness, real life, and real flourishing. And so I'm gonna challenge you I wouldn't have to try hard. I wouldn't even have to poke to have any one of you in this room think of one person that you perceive might have something against you for any number of reasons. I don't know what that might be, but based upon what that is, I wonder if as part of our worship to the Lord, if we would ask him for direction and guidance as to how to reconcile that broken relationship. Because it is, in fact, broken relationship that causes all the problems we see in the world. It just is. And as Jesus, who is the true peacemaker, but the true reconciler between God and man, he's come to show us how to restore broken relationships where they are. And that's what he's calling us to as his followers. This is not easy. But Jesus is saying you can take the route of the world's ways, and then you can reap the rewards of that, or you can take my route, and you can reap the rewards of that. The choice is yours.
But understand, the keeping of the sixth commandment in integrity is dealing with the anger that is present deep in the heart. And as we follow a Jesus who has promised to make this world new, what he's truly come to do is root out by the roots all of the things in this world that cause brokenness, division, and death. And anger in the human heart is one of the biggest and least detected. I mean, goodness. In some circles, if you're not angry at the injustice in the world or angry at the right people, you're no longer part of our social group. In some circles, it's become acceptable and um, approved to be angry all the time. That's kind of how far we've come. And I think that's just a, a statement of how far we are from where Jesus wishes that we would be. Jesus, this is hard to receive teaching like this, but I'm grateful that you are just honest with us. And I ask you today to give us eyes to see into our own hearts, see relationships that aren't what they could be, things that have gone wrong, maybe that we have contributed to. It's, it's not easy to know how even to reconcile a broken relationship, but we know that those in the kingdom are earnestly desire to restore broken relationships. That's what we know. And we know that it's a serious thing when our anger doesn't get addressed. And so I pray that you would be faithful to us today and helping us, first of all, see the anger that might be there. And then for you to be able to help us work through it with you so that we might resolve relationships where there's brokenness, help a brother or sister that we see struggling as a result of something maybe that we've done to contribute to their anger and to know that you've really called us to be faithful in the way that we live out the truth. It's very hard to do it in this area, but I think we stand to find a lot of freedom and a lot of hope in you when we do. So help us, we pray, in your name, amen. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.